course, it shouldn't surprise you that people have thought differently about the cross of Christ. Here we are celebrating the cross, singing about it, and, and seeing it pictured here in the, the bread and the cup. But people have thought very differently about the cross of Jesus Christ. Some people see the cross as very significant, very important. Others do not. One theologian, R.A. Torrey, he served as the first dean of Biola, he said, quote, preach any Christ but a crucified Christ and you will not draw men for long. On the other end of the spectrum is a man by the name of Charles Eliot. Eliot was a president of Harvard University. He argued that man, modern man, has kind of outgrown the idea of a divine atoning Christ. We've gone so far now in our thinking that we those things are antiquated, they're old. We don't need those things anymore. He stated, Let no man fear that reverence and love for Jesus will diminish as time goes on. The passion and heroism of his life, that is the life of Jesus, and his death will be vastly heightened when he, that is Jesus, is relieved, he says, of all supernatural attributes and powers. Eliot is suggesting that by bringing Christ down to our level, bringing him down to the ground, so to speak, by diminishing the supernatural nature of the cross, that somehow in doing that, we'll think more of him, is what he is suggesting. Of course, I hope we know better than this, to think this way, although men may come and show interest in a Christ who demonstrates passion and heroism, they will not remain. Liberalism does not draw men to Christ. Modernism does not draw men to Christ. Some people may claim Christ is a great ethical teacher, but as Kent Hughes said, this will generate no more power than do the Ten Commandments painted on the cold surface of the walls of a church. What is it that will generate power. What will, as Tory said, draw men for long? Well, not to relieve him from supernatural power, but it is to prize the supernatural attributes and power of Christ. It's to lift them up, to exalt them. This will draw men. The Puritan Richard Baxter said, he is the best, the best Christian, excuse me, who has the clearest knowledge of God in his attributes. The more we see of Jesus, the more we see what he is like. The more we understand what he has done. The more we understand what he will do. Well, the smaller our problems become. As Baxter said, we'll become the best Christians. To that end, if you would please stand and we'll read our passage this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. I will say that I'm going to read all of this, but we're actually not going to study every part of it this morning. We're only going to get through, uh, let's see, verse 31, so, uh, but we'll read this whole section here. Verses 27 through 36 of John chapter 12. 
Now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus speaking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As I said, this will be kind of two parts. This will be lifted from the earth, the title for known, lifted from the earth, part one, and then part two. You'll have to come back next week and we'll study the rest of these verses. If you weren't with us last week, let me bring you up to speed on the context of this passage. Jesus had just traveled into Jerusalem for the Passover. Although Jesus has been in Jerusalem in previous years, he had been in Jerusalem previous years for the Passover, this time would be very different. Um, and it would be principally different because he would ride into the city on a donkey and we be proclaimed by the crowds as the king. He would be coronated, you might say, crowned as the king of Israel. And we see that, that cry in chapter 12, verse 13. You remember they had the palm branches and they cried out, Hosanna, or save us, it says. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The crowds, uh, Israel as a nation, they longed for a king. And, well, who better to make king than Jesus of Nazareth? You remember this man? He rivaled the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their religious knowledge, and he, well, he had perf performed amazing deeds, even raising a man from the dead. Something else you should know about this passage that's important, not only that Jesus rode into Jerusalem for this Passover on a donkey and the crowds herald him as the king, but also that some Greeks actually show up in our text. And that is important for us to understand Jesus' response here that we just read. Some Greeks came up to the festival and asked to see or to interview Jesus. And it's this inquiry from these Greeks, this request of an interview, that leads to this response that we just read. We studied the first part of that response last week. We discovered a number of things in that response, but there's two things that I want you to understand this morning that they're going to help us understand the rest of this text. First, the inquiry of the Greeks, this questioning to see Jesus from the Greeks, is a, is a and I said this last week, is a trigger or a prompt, or some kind of marker that something extraordinary is going to happen. 
something very, very special is going to happen. Chapter uh, 12, again, verse 23, Jesus answered them. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. When we read about the hour in the Gospel of John, this is that fateful hour of Jesus' death. That's what's in question here. It's not just any hour. It's a special time period. And of course, it's not a literal hour. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking about that time period around, in, around his passion, his death. And that, that time period has begun. The hour is here. Of course, this time period and his death isn't just any death, but it's his substitutionary death for all those who would believe in him. It's the cross. That's what's at the center of this hour, this fateful hour that is upon him. And so we need to see that this inquiry of the Greeks triggers, uh, it's a marker that something extraordinary is going to happen, but something else too, something eschatological is going to happen. I know that's a big word. Maybe you don't know what that word means, but I I do want to teach it to you because it's an important word. If you're going to study your Bible, if you're going to read books on Christianity about your faith, you need to know this word. It's It's a significant word. You're probably familiar with the word eschaton. Maybe you understand what that word means. Well, eschaton just refers to the end of the world. And so as Christians, we will be rewarded at the eschaton, at the end of the world. So then, if eschaton is the end of the world, then you can imagine eschatology is the study of what? The end of the world. And to say that this is something eschatological is going to happen is just to say that there's something that's going to happen that refers to something concerning the end of the world. That's what this hour is. It's extraordinary and it's eschatological. Therefore, what we'll see as we study the second part of Jesus' response to the Greeks, these verses we just read this morning is that the hour that Jesus speaks of, that fateful hour of the cross, has set in motion a number of things related to the end of the world. Our text begins in verse 27 with a prayer. Well, we might say a kind of prayer. It's really more of a rhetorical prayer than an actual prayer. Jesus says in verse 27 there, Now is my soul troubled, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus says his soul is troubled. Of course, we're not surprised that his soul is troubled. Jesus just spoke about his own death. We're talking about the cross here. Verse 24, if you look up above, he uses an analogy. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Therefore, his soul is troubled. He is stirred, even agitated by the prospect of death. And as the shadow of death begins to envelop him, he cries out, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Of course, as much as we know that Jesus was God, we also know that Jesus was a man. He was the God-man. Therefore, his death is not like any death ever before 
or after. The death of Jesus is neither like the death of a Christian who has escaped the penalty of sin, nor like the unbeliever who is blind to the judgment that awaits him. His death is a unique death, like no other death. Jesus was to bear the full weight of every sin committed by his people. Every ounce of guilt that his people were subject to would strike him directly. And this heart-rending reality, it was fully revealed to him. He understood it and he looked at it. He saw it for all that it was. All that it's blackness, I don't know. It's darkness. It's pain. Jesus could see all that awaited him. The hour was upon him, and he could see with utter horror the dreadfulness of his death. By weak comparison, our bodies recoil at pain. You know that. The human nature of Jesus recoiled And it cried out, Father, save me from this hour. And yet, as soon as those words leave his lips, it's as if he grabs them and pulls them back. But no, he says. Behind that conjunction, but, there is the the strong Greek construction that communicates a stark contrast between what has been said and what will be said. We just read it in the ESV there. Wish it was stronger, but, Father, save me from this hour, but, not that, but this, but for this purpose I came. You remember, Jesus offered very similar words, and he would offer those words, these words that I'm about to read to you, later in the week. You remember the prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's a similar kind of thing, isn't it? Similar kind of phrase. Nevertheless, he says, not as I will, but as you will. both in that prayer and in these words here in verse 27, we're given a portrait of Jesus' humanity. We're allowed to hear his thoughts. We discover is that Jesus was resolved to suffer. He was resolved to accomplish the will of the Father. But for this purpose, for this very purpose, you might say, I have come to this hour. He didn't actually pray to be saved. He didn't actually pray to be delivered from this moment because this was the moment of his purpose. The hour was upon him. And so he prays that that purpose would be fulfilled. And so we have the first accomplishment of the cross. The cross fulfills Jesus' purpose. The cross fulfills Jesus' purpose. This is why Jesus came. In fact, you might say, this is the highest reason why Jesus came. Jesus Has Jesus given us an example? Well, of course he's given us an example to follow. Has he taught us how to live and how to move and to breathe in this world? Certainly he has. Has he modeled the perfect will of God for us? 
Yes. Has he taught us how to think about the downtrodden, the persecuted, those who are suffering and oppressed? Yes, he has. Has Jesus inspired us? Has he encouraged us? Has he motivated us to live lives to the glory of God? Absolutely he's done those things. Has he given us the highest portrait of truth, goodness, and beauty that ever was or ever will be? Certainly he's done that. And yet, I would argue that all of this is secondary. This is all secondary. All of it falls somewhere below the highest reason Jesus came to this world and to this fateful hour that we're talking about. Jesus said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's why he came. Think with me about this passage from Hebrews. I'll read it to you. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four. Listen carefully. We're talking about the reason why Jesus came and I'm arguing that the cross is the highest reason. Well, think about this. Again, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, it says, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, remember that eschatological idea, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now listen carefully. After making purification of sins, what did he do? It says, he sat down at the right hand of majesty, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Why was it that after he he purified us of our sins, why was it that after he died on the cross in some heavenly transcendent place, He sat down because it was finished. It was the work he came to do. He purchased our redemption and he said, I'm done. I'm going to sit down. Why else would he hang on the cross and say, it is finished? Now, before we move away from that point, I want to make a move away from that verse, I do want to make a point of application here. I believe there's great comfort in the fact that Jesus had a troubled heart. He had a troubled soul. This wasn't easy for him. Too often, we're wearied by the fact that we experience soul trouble, that we're conflicted, The battle between our flesh and the spirit ensues and we conclude that we've been conquered. Either by the flesh, the world, or the devil. Well, Jesus actually teaches us the opposite here, I believe. He teaches us that such a battle is godly. There is a war. That's a godly war. Now, Jesus, don't get me wrong, Jesus never failed. He never succumbed to the temptation. But the battle is part of being a Christian. Jesus demonstrates that for us. We could study the experiences of Jesus, the apostles, Paul, all the great saints through history and see that such an inward conflict 
is actually just the thing that qualifies us as being faithful. It's not perfection, of course. We're not arguing that we can be perfection, be perfect, but it's the presence of the fight, the presence of strife, the presence of conflict that's in our heart that proves that we've been pardoned and we're children of God. If there's no fight against sin in your life, well, friend, you're not a Christian. That's part of being a Christian is warring against your sin, hating your sin. If you commit sin and you love it and you think, I don't feel guilty about it. Well, you need to repent. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what being a Christian means. It's fighting one of the things it means. It's fighting against the sin that's within you. And Jesus demonstrates that. His soul was troubled. Again, he never gave into it. Unfortunately, we do. Paul says in Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? You will live. I can hardly quote that verse without quoting John Owen's famous words. Do you mortify? Do you kill is what he's saying. You put it to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Jesus is modeling that struggle for us. Now is my soul troubled. Look at verse 28. Father, glorify your name, Jesus says. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. While Jesus might have prayed, Father, save me from this hour, what he actually prays, is right here. Father, glorify your name. This is what he actually prays. That was a rhetorical prayer before. Glorify your name. And what does it mean to glorify your name? Well, the Father's name is a way of speaking of the the revelation of the Father, the unveiling of himself and his perfect will and purpose. And to glorify his name is to make it stand out. It's to honor it. To make it stand out in all its beauty, all its truth, all its power. And if God's glory is the sum of his attributes, then to glorify his name is to put everything that God is on display. Of course, Jesus, being one with the Father, the moment his lips utter such a request, God answers back from heaven and a voice booms. I have glorified my name, and I will glorify my name again. The Father said he had glorified the name. He had, past tense, glorified his name. Well, how had he done that? In what way had he already glorified his name? Remember John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father had already glorified his name in and through 
the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the picture. We read it in Hebrews. He was the perfect picture of who God was. And so every step Jesus took, every response that Jesus made, every action he did, all of it was putting on display the attributes of God every moment of his life. The entire mission of Jesus, as accomplished up to this point in John 12, had manifested, had shown forth the resplendent beauty of God's glory with perfect clarity, crystal clear clarity. How would he glorify his name again in the future? How would it happen Well, he would glorify his name in that fateful hour of the cross. That's where he would glorify his name. And here we discover a second accomplishment of the cross. The cross fulfills Jesus' purpose, number one. And number two, the cross glorifies God's name. It glorifies God's name. There's a sense in which God is saying, I'll finish what I've begun. It was glorified, and I have glorified it, but I'm going to finish that at the cross. question, in keeping with the idea that God's glory is the sum of his attributes, and that God's name receives honor when his attributes, when those attributes are on display, where else might we more clearly see the sum of his attributes than on the cross? His love for sinners, his wrath against sin, his perfect justice, his redeeming grace, his forgiving mercy, his infinite wisdom. We could go on. So much more, all on display at the cross. Clearly displayed the substitutionary, vicarious death of Jesus at the cross. Look at verses 29 and 31. The crowd, they stood there, they heard it, that it had thundered. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, excuse me, that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The Father from heaven clearly speaks broad daylight, he speaks from heaven, and only Jesus understands the words. You might recall a similar thing happened during Paul's conversion when Jesus appeared to Paul, Acts 9-7. Only Paul understood those words. The, 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 the people that were with him couldn't make sense of it. They knew that, that words had been spoken, but it was, it was a voice, but it was indiscernible. They couldn't discern what those words actually were. Similar thing happens here. Here in this passage, though, the crowd interprets the sound as thunder, and others assume maybe an angel is talking to him from heaven. But they can't make sense of it. Why? Why can't they make sense of this? (laughs) Because they didn't believe. Thank you, Alex. Why was the voice indiscernible to the people and yet discernible to Jesus? 
Well, Jesus does provide some help in verses 30 and 31. Jesus actually says, the voice has come for your sake. Now, he says, is the judgment of this world. Now, you remember what I told you earlier that the Greeks who came to Jerusalem and asked to see Jesus in verse 21, that this was a sign that something eschatological was going to happen, something related to the end of the world. Well, in John's gospel, this inquiry from the Greeks serves as a marker. It represents a transition from Jew to Gentile, from disclosure to concealment. He's no longer going to share things with the Jews. Step back with me for a moment and consider the forest from the trees. When we look, look at God's larger plan of redemption, we discover that that plan includes a concealment. It includes a, a hardening of God's people. And, on the other end, a disclosure or revealing of truth to other people principally the Gentiles. You remember I read you that verse from Romans, Romans 11.25, which says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so God's end-of-the-world plan, his eschatological plan, involves concealing the truth from some people. That's important to understand in this text. If you think about God's truth as a, as a pipe, and God's truth is flowing through the pipe, generally speaking, broadly speaking, the valve to the Gentiles was closed, and the valve to Israel was open. And so God's truth, maybe it was open a little bit and others could hear it, right? But basically it was closed off. Well, there's a moment in the ministry of Jesus when he closes the valve to Israel, and he opens the valve to the Gentiles. And so now that's what Jesus is talking about. This is the judgment that has come. This is why I pointed out previously in Matthew chapter 12 with the parables. That's what Jesus is doing with the parables. He's closing the valve. He's saying, now I, you, I came, I said I was the Messiah. You rejected me, you're done. I'm closing the valve and I'm going to give it to somebody else. I'm going to open it up to the Gentiles. And now principally, my truth is going to the church. It's going to the Gentile nations. Now, we're not getting there, but in the future, God will open both valves. And he has a plan to do that in the future. That's spoken of in other places in the Bible. But here, this is the transitional kind of thing we're talking about. There's a judgment that's coming over God's people. And that is that eschatological end of the world thing that we're addressing and we'll actually explore that more in the weeks to come. Verses 36 through 43 will actually speak to that directly. He'll quote Isaiah and address it directly. We'll address that then. So think with me for a, sec for, for a minute. In these verses, a voice booms from heaven. God himself speaks from the heavens. I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name again. And the crowd stood there. They, they heard it, and they couldn't discern what it says. All they can say is, did you hear it thundered? What was that? I don't know. 
And Jesus says, now has the judgment come. That voice didn't come for my sake. I know my father. That voice came for your sake to show you that you couldn't hear it. Because as Alex helped us with, they didn't believe. And so, couldn't hear. Some maybe, some stuck in the middle somewhere, just assume, well, an angel must have spoke. I don't know, maybe they're closer. Either way, that's the judgment. The judgment is that they, can, they couldn't hear. It came to, that voice came to demonstrate that they wouldn't understand, in fact, that they couldn't understand. The crowds and the people that followed Jesus did so well, because they benefited from his signs. It's nice to get healed. Because they thought he might deliver them from the Romans. It was for their own benefit. That's why they followed him. They weren't really following, from, following him from the heart. At the end of the week, they just said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in just a couple days, what would happen? It would turn on him. They weren't true followers of Jesus. And so then we discover in these verses a third accomplishment of the cross, and it's this. The cross judges the world. The cross judges the world. Notice there are two parts to this. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world be, will be cast out. The, the word now there is emphatic. You can kind of underline it. Jesus is stressing the idea that the hour has already begun. Now it's here, right now, it's happening. Well, it appears the crowds wish to honor Jesus. We know it's coming, as we've said. They're gonna cry out to crucify him by the end of the week. And so these cries, this declaration, is their judgment. The world condemns itself with the treatment of the Son. Jesus already knows what's gonna happen. And so in killing Jesus, They've cut themselves off. They've been judged. And this judgment against the world is, of course, the most terrible of judgments. The world, the very world that we live in, that crucified the Son of God, uh, ceases to, to have a right to exist. It's a judgment against the world itself. 1 John 2.17, And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world lost its right to exist. Now to say the cross judges the world isn't to say that the cross is, is the last that at the cross is the last judgment. It's simply to say that the cross that the that at the cross this judgment has begun. The hour has come. This is where God's eschatological plan will begin. Here at the cross. I told you this judgment comes in two parts. First, again, the cross judges the world. And the second, the cross judges the ruler of this world. That's what the text says. Judges the ruler of this world. Now, we know who the ruler of this world is, right? It's the devil, Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world. Here we discover that by inciting the world to kill Jesus, the, the devil wrecked his own domain. Jesus says the devil has been cast out. 
other translations say he'll be thrown out or driven out. There's a judgment against Satan. The devil, he is the ruler, and because he is a ruler, in some sense we might say he's been dethroned at the cross. He's dethroned at the cross. And his dethronement is neither gradual nor progressive, but sudden and instantaneous. At least that's how the grammar in this text says, says it. That's the sense of the future verb, will be cast out. It's over. The devil has met his doom at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a more difficult question we have to answer. In what sense? If the devil met his doom at the cross, and the ruler of this world has been cast out at the cross, in what sense is that true? How are we to think about the devil today, after the cross? He has been defeated, absolutely. I'd like to give you three ways the devil met his doom at the cross. They're not from this text. They're just going to help you out from some other passages here. The first way the devil met his doom at the cross, the cross released the prisoners of Satan. The cross released the prisoners of Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we know that Satan's work is to keep us captive to sin. At the cross, Jesus paid the price of righteousness that God required, thereby releasing us from the power of sin and of Satan. Remember Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the text says, the devil. He destroyed that one. And while we were once captives to Satan, now, as new covenant believers, we're captive to Christ. You remember that passage in Colossians 1.13? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Therefore, at the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. He freed us, all those who believe in him, from captivity. Christ himself said in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The cross released the prisoners of Satan. Number two, the cross routed the powers of evil. It routed the powers of evil. Colossians 2.15 says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed, disarmed the rulers, the, uh, excuse me, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus disarmed the enemy of his position and power. He routed the powers of evil. He destroyed it. He decimated it. Therefore, the cross has delivered us from any demonic control or internal influence. I hope you believe that. The believer should never say, the devil made me do it. We could never say that. Christ is in us. 
The devil, can make you, the devil can't make you do anything. Furthermore, the devil can't make you think anything. What the devil does is he's really good at making fishing lures. You know that illustration, right? It comes from James. He makes those fishing lures, and they look so enticing. And he throws them out, and we bite. But we have the power by his spirit to, to look at that beautiful lure. This is why we have to be working on our heart, right? Crucifying the idols of our heart. Reshaping our mind to love Jesus, to see value in him. So, so that when we see those lures that Satan creates, we see something more amazing and beautiful and lovely in Christ. So we don't take the bait. We don't bite on those lures. Read James 1, verses 13 through 15. That's the, the language he's using there. Paul uses such statements like, let not, sin, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, for sin will have no dominion over you, he says. Although we live in the flesh and are subject to sin, we're able to not sin. Because at the cross, Jesus routed, he defeated the power of the devil. The cross of Christ is a declaration that men have no reason to fear or to follow Satan ever again. The devil met his doom at the cross because, number one, the cross released the prisoners of Satan. Number two, the cross routed the powers of evil, powers of evil. And number three, the cross ratified the punishment of Satan. The contract was signed. He was done. You understand that this passage, while it teaches that Jesus has been defeated, has been cast out, as it says, as Jesus says, this isn't the end of the story. There are other things that are going to happen. Revelation chapter 20, verse 3 tells us Satan will be cast into a pit. And then in the very, very end, Revelation 20, verse 10 tells us that in the very end, he'll be cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, it says, where he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. It'll be over fully and finally then. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, it's a very familiar verse, for our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. By being made sin at the cross, God makes a judgment against all sin at the cross. The cross is a judgment against all sin, and thereby it's against the originator of sin, Satan himself. The cross then ratifies his punishment. It seals the final judgment of Satan and his demons. Satan is a condemned criminal awaiting judgment. And he's a dead man walking as they say. So then, in what sense did the devil meet his doom at the cross? Well, in this sense, the cross released the prisoners of Satan, the cross routed the powers of evil, and the cross ratified the punishment of sin. So then we've discovered three accomplishments of the cross. Number one, the cross fulfills Jesus' purpose. We saw that. Number two, the cross glorifies God's name. We saw that, and finally we saw that the cross judges the world. There's more, but this is just the opening part of the verses we read. 
if we step back from our text this morning, we can't overlook the fact that we're talking about a man who allowed, who allowed the, the crowds to herald him as a king, and yet he spoke about falling to the earth and dying. Jesus was a king. He was a new kind of king. He was a kind of king that nobody, no, this world has never seen before. He was a king who ruled by a principle no earthly king had ever imagined. What was that principle? Sacrifice. That was the principle. No king ruled by that kind of principle. This point is captured well by the poet Charles Ross Weed in his poem Christ and Alexander. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's a poem that compares Jesus and Alexander the Great and draws out this point. The poet writes, Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for himself and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. The one made himself God, the God made himself less. The one lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves, the Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood, the other built on love. The one was born of earth, the other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The, uh, the other gave up all, that all to him be given. The Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. Listen to that last line again. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. Jesus gave, and what did he win? Well, here, we see it. His purpose, he gave it all. It was his purpose. He fulfilled his purpose by giving it all. He accomplished the glory of God's name by laying down his life as a sacrifice. He accomplished the judgment of all the world. What king wouldn't want that? But power. And not with a sword, but riding in on a donkey to lay down his life for his people. Jesus teaches us kingship comes through serving. Life comes through death. Amen.